Hi, this is Dr. Shannon Wong-Lerner, host of The Intersection, where diverse folks converse. Created by and for queer people of color and gender non-conforming people, The Intersection is curated side by side with some of the most brilliant and fascinating minds in our community. I create these programs keeping in mind all of the things that aren't said and all of the things that we aren't able to talk about within heterosexual and cisgendered produced shows. In the intersection, you'll find firsthand what the leading voices of our community are thinking, the work they're producing, the concerns they have, and what they hope for us and what they leave behind in their legacy. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, this is Dr. Shannon Wong-Lerner, and here here with The Intersection, where diverse folks converse. Today is episode number eight, and the title of our episode is Seriously Laughing About Imposter Syndrome, a conversation with Renee Santos about identity, comedy, and performance. And here we're here with our special guest, Renee Santos. She's a comedian, actor, and writer, and has an album out right now called Out the Box. Hi, Renee. So glad that you're here with us. Hi. It's the title of the album is actually Outside the Box, but oh, it's Outside the Box. Okay, outside the box. Yeah. that actually makes more Out sense. Than what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a I don't know one of those like box reveal YouTube videos. Like, yeah, yeah like, so yours yours actually makes a lot more sense. <laughs> so actually, Renee and I chose this topic of imposter syndrome and then we added that seriously laughing about just because it was something it was a theme that came up when we we're having our conversation it's something also that's been circulating a lot on LinkedIn and you know on different social media platforms it's a kind of a buzzword you hear a lot I looked up the term just so we'd have an official definition and I got one from Harvard Business Review so Harvard Business Review defines imposter syndrome as doubting your abilities and feeling like a fraud. It disproportionately affects high achieving people who find it difficult to accept their accomplishments. And many question whether they're deserving of their accolades. I also added a little caveat to it or addition. And I said, people of color, women and queer people of color experience imposter syndrome in a special way because of the systems of oppression. And I would say the intersectional systems of oppression we've faced and that we do face telling us from the start that we can't do the thing that we're very, that we're doing, that we're actually doing right now. You've just learned about Renee Santos, who's a special guest for this episode, as well as learned about imposter syndrome as a way in which diverse people feel as if they haven't earned the success that they have. Now you're going to learn about imposter syndrome and comedy, specifically from Renee's perspective and how she talks about her real life events in pain, her sobriety, her family, and her intersectional identity, and how she turns all these experiences into a way for all of us to be right there alongside her and also giving us a chance to heal from our own pain. And so I thought it was a really important topic. I also, I was just so happy to have Renee on too, because 
I, I love all of my guests of the intersection, but I am, and we were just talking about this before we started because I, for, I forgot the episode number, so we had to restart. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, a serious person and all the work I've done and kind of all the disciplines that I've been a part of, every, everything from classical music and opera to, you know, getting my PhD. But I'm also like, a, I'm actually a really silly and goofy person. And I really wanted to get a, a queer person of color, a queer woman of color on the intersection just to, I, just to like have that interaction with that would be really fun and jovial. So when I saw Renee's comedy and heard it, I just knew that it would be a really good fit. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. I'm a very serious person that understands the world through laughing about mm-hmm. my life. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's sort of a weird juxtaposition, but like completely necessary for my survival. <laughs> yeah, I'm really looking forward to us all hearing about it. So just to start, I really want to think about, you know, the project that you have going on right now and that we're talking about outside the box. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you for correcting me. Uh, I really like just for you to tell us more about it. So like giving us a quick synopsis and sort of like your vision and its mission yeah, you know, I'm I'm so grateful that you you wanted to bring this back up because my my album originally came out. I, I produced it and made it in 2018, and then obviously there was like a gestation stage when you're getting it out into the world, and then finally in 2019 I had gone on NBC to like launch the announcement of this album, and then in 2020 I was supposed to go on tour with the mm. album, and then coronavirus happened and all of society shut down and I did not tour with this album. And so basically this, this passion project of mine has basically like petered out and hasn't really had a voice yet and hasn't Mm. really been out in the world, even though it's a few years old. Sure. And I had this fear that like, wow, I put all of my, you know, it's like my, my baby, I'd put this out into the world and no one was going to see it because of like, this crazy pandemic that we've all had to acclimate to. So um, it's really nice in 2021 to be able to have this conversation for something that I sort of birthed in 2018. Um, So yeah, this outside the box is sort of a culmination of the first 10 years of my comedy, but also my entire life. I'm very much like an anecdotal comic. I'm a storyteller, not as much like setup punch. And so to have a platform where I had a full hour where I could sort mm. of tell my stories um, was a was a better fit for me as an artist. I did the comedy club scene for so many years and you get these eight minute sets and you're in an ensemble of comics. And, and I realized that, yeah, I was more of a storyteller and I play guitar and, you know, I have all these other like sort of variety type elements to my comedy. So I'm like, hmm, I think I need to create uh, more content in order to, mm-hmm. to really tell my story. So, um, it made sense to do it this way. I really love, I, I love the, the album. I don't, I keep wanting to call it a special. I like I love, sort of both. It's the yeah, sort of both. I, I love it just because I feel like I feel so comfortable when I hear it and it might be perhaps so like something that's interesting about both Renee and me is that we're both sober you know, we're both uh, queer women of color. And like, so there are these sem- similarities, but especially the sober thing, you know, which I'll get to a little later, is I like, I feel very comfortable in your story. Mm-hmm. And not that it's my story at all. But you know, 
there's some alignment there and you tell it in such a way where, you know, you take us through different aspects of your life, whether it's like struggle or tension or like family issues and how you've like navigated the world as you, uh, but like, yeah, there's a lot of storytelling and there's like a lot of depth. So I think, you know, I think a lot of our listeners would just really like to engage with your, with your album. Yeah. Um, for, for clarity uh, about that initially, and then I'll, I'll speak more on like the actual content, but the album, it's both. So we recorded it, they filmed it. And then it was also, um, the, the audio files are, were released on iTunes and Spotify. So they're sort of the, the same thing. Um, but if you're like running on a tra- treadmill, you can just download and listen to it as a comedy album. And um, if you want to actually view the content. So yeah, it's one and the same thing. That's why it has the same title. But, um, you know, I... I do a lot of like impressions of my mom and I do talk a lot about my sobriety in the, in the special. And a lot of that comes from a level of pain. And what I realized in my comedy is that we can only create this like caricature of our human folly once we've processed it. And I realized yeah. that like, I couldn't talk about it ha- if I hadn't processed it yet. And so it was a very much a part of my healing. And I feel like, you know, when people like yourself that say that they relate to it, but it's like a parallel, it's not Mm -hmm. an exact replica of their story. That's one of the reasons why I'm very transparent about who I am, because we all, I think sometimes when we're trying to find what our identity is, we're looking for our differences and not our similarities. Mm -hmm. And that there's like this collective separatism that we all have. And I, that's what I'm trying to bring to the, through my comedy is that, my story may not be the exact same as you, but I have the same human folly that you have. And it just looks slightly different, you know? And I think also like something that came up when I first heard your comedies, I don't laugh at a lot of contemporary comics. Like most of the comics I love are, are dead or they're like really, really <laughs> old. So like people like Mel Brooks or like Lenny Bruce or, you know, comics like that. And something that is really interesting to think about, I think with your comedy too, and, and, you know, my connections to those comics is having material that is like pretty radical, like especially thinking of someone like Lenny Bruce and saying like, you know, saying things that are like political and very socially rich, but being done through comedy and being done through laughter kind of connects to our theme of, you know, seriously laughing about imposter syndrome. I think there's a way to get into important social issues, you know, in a different way through comedy that makes it more accessible. And I think I thought about that when I was listening to your your album, because it was like, not only my response, this is like sitting by myself laughing, you know, which is rare, but then also hearing the audience too, um, is that, you know, it's not just shock the way you do it, I think, but there, there's something underneath it that I think speaks to people and maybe even, you know, marginalized people in a way that they couldn't connect with if they just had like an informational show or, I agree with that. that. You know, the heart of Outside the Box, the sort of the seed of what created the whole rest of the special came from one of the most painful moments for me um, when Proposition 8 did not pass in California. Mm. And I felt like the last of my childhood, like naivete had been robbed from me. And I wrote a, a, 
a joke. Like I, I wrote a 20 minute set that came out of the pain. I was running along San Vicente Boulevard in Santa Monica. And there was this Jeep that was literally stopping at each intersection and putting a sign that said, yes, on Prop 8. And I was running along that boulevard and there was something in me. I kept pulling up the sign. Mm. Every time he would hammer in a sign, yeah. he would pull up the sign and he'd hammer in a sign. I would pull up the sign. And I was just getting enraged, enraged. And it was like, my knees were buckling. I was so on fire and like I couldn't believe it hadn't passed and I just I, I felt so unseen and the fact that here I was in California where I thought how how did this not pass in California and you know I remember crossing the street and I and I had this moment of like explosion where I'm like do you know that I'm queer would you have stopped for me in the sidewalk if you knew I was queer or like you know what I mean are you one of those people that voted yes like all of a sudden I felt like everybody was against yeah. me and it was like this crazy space. And I had heard, um, at the time, Bill Huckabee had said when, when this had happened, that it was that people are not that they, he said, I'm not trying to discriminate against our gay brothers and sisters. I believe that gay people have a handicap. Mm -hmm. And that was something really sad. And that birthed one of my gold, like, and it's very controversial, controversial, because now when I do stand up comedy, people are like, Renee, do this, do the handicap joke, do the handicap joke. <laughs> yeah. and it was sort of at the heart of it, because all of a sudden, when I heard that, like I was standing in my apartment, venting to my roommate, and I'm like, handicap, God, conservative people say such ignorant shit, it could potentially benefit us. I want my blue little Packard with two women screwing on it so I can park up front and center at the grocery store. And I give this whole list of handicap privileges. If you think I'm handicapped because I'm queer, mm -hmm. I give you a list of all the privileges I want, how I want to go to Disneyland and not wait in line and, <laughs> and, and, and skip all like the, the straight people that are waiting in line with their <laughs> Like, I'm sorry, I'm a lesbian. Like, I get to go first. And like, so it was really speaking to the absurdity mm -hmm. of somebody really saying that queer people were handicapped. And I realized that's why this was important to talk about because number one, it was very healing for me in that moment of rage where I wanted to like stab people. I felt homicidal. And what instead what I did is I vented and I put pen to paper and I turned that angst and anger into art. And it was the seed of my special. Yeah, that was, I, that was a really funny, I actually heard, I was re-listening to your album <laughs> on the way here and I heard, I think that was the last one I heard. <laughs> so just so, and I'm, I think it's cause it's such a famous proposition. I think everyone knows, but just to kind of um, back up for a moment and uh, fill people in as proposition eight was a ban on same sex marriage. We just wrapped up our section on imposter syndrome and comedy as Renee talks about how she turns her angst and anger into art and sometimes her best ideas. In this next section, imposter syndrome and identity, we both talk about how we have stood in between different identity categories that makes it difficult for others, for society, and even for ourselves to place ourselves in a way that other people can understand. And so we come to ask ourselves, what does it mean when you stand between the identities that are recognizable by other people? How do you come to terms with that? And how do you come to a place of self-acceptance and self-love with who you are as you are? Yeah, and it's actually same, you know, cause I look ambiguous too. Mm -hmm. I have a really good accent when I do languages, but I might not know the language at all. And so like when I lived in Korea, people would come up to me, like if they were lost or something, they'd be holding a map. Cause this was 
I guess this before, or they, I know it was, it was before cell phones. So they were holding up the app and then they would start talking to me. And then I would just look at them like that and they would get so embarrassed and they would walk away. You know, um, I had this whole joke about when I did Chinese speech contests, I had a joke about, uh, people thinking I was Chinese from the back, but then they thought I was white from the front, which was like, everyone was laughing at the speech. It's class. funny. Yeah, funny. it was really funny. Um, it's really interesting to think about identity in this way. Cause we're so like, you know, visually oriented and like dominated, you know, by like how totally. we look on the outside and, and then these markers, right. These identity markers. So you not having been fluent in Spanish, uh, you know, me not having like more Asian features and definitely not Asian, like traditionally Asian mannerisms for sure for me, <laughs> uh, you know, but it's like, it's interesting to think about this intersectionally in terms of your, you're in the middle of this intersection being who you are, right? Mm -hmm. and, and also speaking, not just to the um, cultural identity, but you know, when you, you talk about the visual aesthetic, like I'm very feminine looking. Yes. You know, we talked a lot about this in like pre-interview and I wasn't, um, I was a little nervous about getting um, vocal about it, but I think it's an important, it's important to talk about um, the fact that like my female identity, like I, I am very female. I identify as female. I've, I'm, I'm not a trans person, but I've always had identity issues around being female because I was born with what my doctor said was very pronounced genitalia. It was like this weird general term where I didn't yeah. know it, whether or not I was born intersex. And the definition of intersex is you actually had to have an expression of both male and female chromosomes. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I was born with two X chromosomes, but yet my genitalia had expression of like male, mm -hmm. like almost like male scrotum and like, I know this sounds crazy to talk about, like, I can't even believe I'm talking about this out loud, but like, I always felt like this, like freak of nature because I still looked very female to the outside world, fully clothed. I looked very female, but I was, it was almost more shocking, made me more of a creep in my family where they were mm. like, but you almost look like weirdly, like an underdeveloped male when I, especially when I was a little girl, like mm. before puberty, it was almost, almost more, I almost looked more male you know, um, because when I hit puberty, I was much more expressed as female and yes. developed breasts. And I mean, I, I was female. Yes. Um, I have a uterus, I have fallopian tubes. I have, I'm female, but it was like during the mitosis process, like there was something that, that externally was not, sure. and it, it could never get defined. And so I was, I was at this, speaking of an intersection where it is still to this day where we're finally having these discussions mm -hmm. about non-binary. I still have never found a place where yeah. I am female, I'm not intersexed, I'm not trans, I'm not, but yet this was a huge, huge part of my story down to my active addiction. Um, you know, in the deepest, darkest parts of my active addiction, I had so much shame attached to this. Like I had experienced sexual assault attributed to my gen genitals and like I'd been attacked and put on display. And so I went through this stage in my life where I really wanted to fix it. I did research. I went to a reconstructive gynecologist and asked if I looked normal. And I, I was told that I was an incredible candidate for reconstructive surgery. Mm. In fact, finally, I mean, I'm sort of skipping forward in the story in 2019, um, I finally had a procedure, a reconstructive procedure in a labiaplasty. And 
my genitalia was used in a medical journal. Yeah. And I was kept anonymous, but basically my vagina is famous. Sure. Um, because this was such a transformative discussion and procedure and no one had seen anybody like me. But apparently mm-hmm. one in 2,400 people are born like me where they're technically a specific gender, yet their genital expression expresses mm-hmm. the other gender. Yes. And so I was like feature, asked to be featured in this medical journal. And I just found this very interesting, like, how do I talk about this? And how sure. do I, how do I, because I felt speaking of identity, I'm like, I can't talk about this until I'm categorized mm-hmm. until I'm, until I can be referenced as something. And, and as long as like, I needed a title for so long, like I would go to my yearly gynecologist. And I'm like, okay, so when my intersex, like, what do I say that I am? Can you tell me? And they're like, no, because you don't have a Y chromosome. So that, you know, so I'm like, well, what do I say to people? But they're like, yes, you're abnormal. Yes, you're, and they're like, it's kind of like, but even saying that you're abnormal, that feels really, I'm assuming it feels, it felt really bad, especially when you were little, but even totally. it carrying through to the point where in my, I'm sort of ten, being tangent, tangential here, but in my active addiction, I like looked online on what a female circumcision was and tried to perform it on my own. Oh my goodness. Hospitalized yeah. and, and had all of this scarring and it just, it, and it became like physically painful. And sure. I had so much shame attached to it. And it, it was actually the beginning of my journey of starting to volunteer for trans groups through the gay and lesbian center, because I felt like I had to find a community I could have a conversation with. And, and I also was scared to go to these trans groups because I wasn't trans and it wasn't that I didn't want to be identified as trans. I almost felt like this is their platform and I shouldn't be here because that's not fair. Mm-hmm. And like, but yet this shame around my genitalia, the paralysis I felt about identifying myself as a human being because of my genitalia. Mm-hmm. Every time I was in these meetings, I could relate more to the trans community than any other community in my entire life. So I still, to this day, don't know what conversation I am allowed to have. Around. Yeah. And I think it's okay, you know, like on here on the intersection to like create that conversation. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think even after people hear your story and, and just making it available, like the platform available for you to tell it, I feel like you'll get that support and it'll start a conversation and more people come forward and then perhaps find that community. Right. But I'm like, so glad that in the trans community, you felt some like there was a connection there, right? Like you, you understood their story and they, I'm hoping they were receptive to you and compassionate to you. Yeah. I mean, I think what, one of the most beautiful comparisons I've ever heard is that the trans people are the butterflies of humanity. Mm. And I really love that, you know, and in many ways, like I have sort of felt like part of that butterfly group. And that was the first time in a conversation with a trans person where like, I really felt connected to that because it was, it was a transformation for me. And, you know, when I finally had my procedure in 2019, I have lived my different, my life completely differently. Like I, it's almost like I remember seeing your interview with with Scott here and, um, you know, he talked about like 
when you transition, it's almost like you've gone through puberty again yes. and like you're starting over. And it's, I related to that. Like, I remember hearing that and thinking when I had my procedure, it was like, I had gone through puberty again. Like I was a virgin again, like mm. all of that, that whole part of my body and my coming to terms with it and knowing how that part of my body even worked. All of that was brand new for me. It was, it, it, and here I was at 39 years old and I felt, I, I felt like I was in a whole different body from how I show up in my confidence, even down to like, I've been single for a couple of years, like dialogues around potentially dating my, my confidence as finally feeling like I am mm-hmm. fully female yes. has shifted. And I never felt that my whole life, even though I had been pigeonholed as female and it always felt weirdly wrong. Like I remember people being like, yeah, you know, I I don't know. I've had conversations with women over the years about Mm stupid stuff from like underwear to I hate buying thongs and the thongs get stuck up your ass and I'm just mm-hmm. like, that thing where I'm just like I could never wear a thong because yeah. my genitalia was so pronounced like I had to wear different like I would hear these female conversations where I'm like I can't even have that regular female weird conversation about how I don't like my thought like I always felt strange yeah I didn't I didn't know it honestly wasn't until this past year and you know at the beginning of this discussion when we talked about you can't talk about something until you're comfortable with it. Yes. I think that's why it's taken me to almost 41 years old to have this conversation. Although I have felt tormented for my entire lifetime. This has probably been the biggest issue of my entire life. And I've just talked about it this past year. And do you feel like I'm thinking about like the fodder and we've talked about this before too, you know, even thinking about the old fashioned, you know, symbol for theater where you have like the comedy on one side and then the tragedy on the other and thinking about, because I've had this feeling not from the same circumstance, but feeling like I'm the only one, like I'm unlovable. I still carry that around, you know, cause I'm the only one, cause I'm weird. Cause I, and this was a lot of, cause of my closetedness mm-hmm. and um, my gender expression, not being truly what it was. So I was like, almost like high femme. I, I had like a, to- I was like a totally different person. It's really weird for me to look at a picture of myself from when I was identified as heterosexual to now. Cause it's like a different person. It's really strange, but I, we've been talked before about kind of like the fodder for creativity and art being, you know, something that is like your core issue or your core pain or some place of origin, but it was felt very difficult. Do you feel like, you know, this issue you've had with your genitalia and, uh, the pronouncement and then it being corrected in a way that feels like you has been like a, a, an opportunity for you to express yourself in a way creatively. And if, and if not yet, what do you think that could be? I'd really, even making it into your own story, like, like the butterfly story, you know, for trans people, like making it into a mythologizing it or making it into something really beautiful like that. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting because it has affected my art and, and I'm still sort of formulating like how I'm, how I want to talk about it. You sure. know, I, I don't know if I'm going to do it in the play, the, the platform of stand-up comedy, although 
I, I, I am sort of in this gestation stage of creating my next, mm-hmm. my next special. And the reason why I mention it is because outside the box, which is very special to, to me because it was my baby, it, it is sort of this like younger Renee. And I, you know, I, I brainstormed kind of my next special being called the 40 year old version. Mm-hmm. Um, because all of this has sort of come on the other side of me turning 40 and, and my identity around some of that and my, my willingness to be more transparent. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the jokes that are in my original special are, I, I was adhering to my audience. I was talking about the things that I thought people wanted to hear. And even though they were true, they were really my experience. It wasn't necessarily what I wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. It was what other people thought was marketable. Yes. You know, and I, so that's this, almost like a closeting, you know, like you not yeah. being able to come out with who you are, which is important for your expression, for your, you know, this being your comedy, your art. Mm-hmm. And I think around this issue of sort of coming into my own in my late thirties, even as an artist, like I, I feel like the story that I'm ready to tell as I start to write my next special is going to be so much more emotionally honest than Mm. my original special because I have really come to terms with who I am and even aging. Like I want to talk about that. I want to talk about what it is like to be an aging woman, especially as an art, not that I'm old, but that as an artist, like to be developing artistically, to be discovering who we are at 40, like we're, we have this stigma in our society that you can't begin at 40. You mm-hmm. can't start something at 40. Like that's already when you're in the flow, you know, you're halfway <laughs> through your life. Like you got this down. And, and I've realized that like ageism in this country is not just about the people who are aging. It affects the young. This is why young artists think they have to accomplish everything by 25. They're panicked. Cause they're like, I'm going to be completely irrelevant by 40. I got to do it all now. So that like that anxiety that I think happens is also inadvertently from ageism because we don't value that. And so like this whole stuff with like my genitalia and my identity and, and being this sort of like white Latina without the attachment to culture, I I've processed all of that to the point where this is now what I want to talk about. And I feel more creative in the expression of it, even down to the platform in which I'm doing it. Like I'm sort of a musician. I say sort of a musician because part of my identity is I always wanted to play music when I was a little girl, but my mother said that that's, nope, that's too masculine. You can't play guitar, you can't. So that was also part of my closeting in Mm -hmm. a way. It's like I secretly hid that I kind of wanted to be a musician. I really love your, so I was listening to the song and it was, I really love your music and your comedy. You were singing the, um, that stopped children, but you had changed the words. Yes. Yeah. I do. I do a comedy parody that uh, when, uh, Trump was in the white house, I call it celebrity. It's really good. It's really funny. It's a parody of for what it's worth. It's really good. You're about midway through the intersection. Diverse folks converse podcast. I wanted to take a moment to let you know why I created the intersection. It was because I didn't see a lot of representation of the most brilliant and creative minds in our communities. All I saw were misrepresentations in popular culture and the media. So I wanted to provide a free and accessible outlet for us all to enrich our lives and to provide meaning for the things that we experience every single day. 
None of us get paid for the intersection, and this is not a income-generating endeavor for any of us. We do this because we want to add to our culture and we want to add to your lives. So we just ask that you participate as well and contribute to us through subscribing to our channel and, and leaving reviews and telling your friends and telling the community, put it up on web boards, sh share it in social media, tell people about us. But really subscribing, adding the reviews to Dr. Shannon Wong Learner's YouTube channel, which houses the intersection, to the intersection on Apple Podcasts or Spotify is really the best way to let other people know about us and to help us increase our visibility so we can increase yours. Thank you so much. And you can now return to the show. And thank you for listening. We've just finished the section on imposter syndrome and identity in which Renee tells her very important and harrowing story. We now go into the new section, which is imposter syndrome and performance. Renee talks about in this section how comedy and performance within comedy allows for you to reveal yourself on the stage as you're becoming who you are. So there is a becoming that happens between you and the audience, you and your material, and the moment of performance. Enjoy this last section of The Intersection with special guest Renee Santos. It makes me think a lot about, you know, performance itself mm -hmm. and sort of, um, like you said, like you said, you always wanted to be a musician. You've always wanted to you know, play guitar and do all these things. Uh, and you, and I feel like you do it well for the comedy stage. I've heard all different versions of, or people have to bring in a guitar player because they don't know how to play or something. Which is also the beautiful thing about stand-up comedy because when I start, I sort of learned the instrument on stage. Yeah. And the, the platform of stand-up comedy gives you permission to do that. Like the first time sure. I guitar, I was missing my G-string, like the actual G-string. <laughs> yeah. And I made it part of the joke and I was like plucking different guitars. Yeah, yeah. Literally, I wasn't, I was like, my G-string is loose. And it, like, <laughs> it ended up working because I actually <laughs> could not play the instrument. <laughs> but I'm like, if I were a real musician, I could not get up yeah, there. Yeah, you couldn't be like in front of some huge expo with the G-string <laughs> yeah. missing. Even if you told that joke, people would be like, boo! No, I think, I think it's really cool because it makes me think about, and this is something I learned because the, uh, the, the last degree I got, the doctorate that I got was in communication, but it was, I studied performance studies. Mm -hmm. And something that was always really valuable that I, and I learned for myself and my self-growth is like, you can't stop when you're performing. When you're doing live, like if you're doing musician or you're, a, you know, you're, you're doing comedy, you can't like stop and be like, okay, so I'm going to do that joke again. Cause it didn't really like land well. You can't, that's like, I, I've never seen that happen. I mean, you could do it and make it into a joke, I guess. Um, and you have to like, I started creating to, to make up for that too. Like I, I had a joke for a really long time where I was like really broke and I couldn't pay my bills. And if I would forget a joke or I needed to recalibrate mm -hmm. that moment, I would take a bill. I had it in my back pocket <laughs> 
And when I needed to remember something, I used it as a tool where I would take that bill out of my back pocket. I'm like, oh, this is just a bill I can't pay. And it was, it got a laugh because I was reading the next <laughs> joke off of the bill I couldn't pay. Yeah. I talked about that earlier in my set. And so stand-up comedy gives you that, like the inability where I can mess up and this is how I can utilize. It's interesting to think about like the topics you've talked about before, like your addiction issues, you know, sobriety, um, you know, stuff with your identity and like things that happened and, and thinking about these as otherwise, like, I don't know, like, like flaws, right. Mm -hmm. Character flaws or whatever you want to say, but they're, they're not, that makes what makes you human. It's, these are the things that make us human. And I feel like comedy, you know, is very human too. It's almost like, cause I do, I did performance art. That's what I studied. Mm-hmm. when I was in uh, you know, the university and performance art is, is very critical. Cause you're like, kind of, there's a part that's like duping, you know, like, um, like Borat or something where you're like, basically like fucking with people, like, yeah. you know, in public and they don't know, I can't think of that other guy. Oh, I'm the only thing when I think of is Borat, but there was the other guy that did something around religious people where he was like trying to make basically people in rural areas look really stupid. But there's another part. I, I try not to do that. That's not like, not like a mean duping con- uh, performance artist, but it's like awakening people's senses to something new. Right. Mm-hmm. And this was whole, the whole purpose. I think of, um, uh, flash mob or, you know, especially the little flash mobs or not flash mob. There was, was it also flash mom? Someone would start doing like a routine and it would be weird. Right. But it would be like a routine. Someone was used to so like someone would go into a starbucks and like ask for a drink and then someone else would yell and then this other thing would happen and they would leave and then it just kept happening so it was like a performance art right yeah and and then i remember someone talking about it being like something really weird is happening at starbucks (laughs) but it was like a commentary on getting stuck in a pattern getting stuck in a routine right and then it became almost like musical so it's really interesting to think about you know, comedy in the same way that it's really there to awaken your senses in a way that you don't expect. So it doesn't have to be fine tuned. It Mm. doesn't have to be like, you know, the etiquette doesn't have to be high etiquette. In fact, it's not supposed to be right. Is there any, there's a Christian comic who has the show, but like, are there any polite comics? There's that Christian, you know who I'm talking about? I can't think of his name. He has that show. He jokes that he looks like a lesbian with his haircut. Do you know who he is? He's either on HBO or Showtime. I can't remember, but he actually ends up going way outside of like, he is a Christian. He's, he's like very moral, but like, then he starts telling these really wild jokes, you know, about foreskin and things. He's doing like a Christian tour and then he gets kicked off because he tells this foreskin joke. I know exactly who you're talking about. And Uh, then Sarah Silverman appears for a short, there's a lot of comics that are in and out. it's going to bother me that I can't think of this. But anyway, that, the show. I think the point, the Pete point Holmes. I'm making, uh, yes, Pete, Pete Holmes. Holmes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, there is something about like, you know, going into a stigma and then like busting through it. I feel like that's what comics are allowed to do with laughter and like totally. with the medium. That's why I've always really, I'm always drawn to comedy and comedians, like good comedians, because I feel like it is political. You know, it's doing something it political. Is. And I think it also, uh, you can address uncomfortable topics in a way that like, 
sort of uh, like coddles your audience in a way that they need, which is what I'm trying to discover with like what we've just been talking about when I think about, can I bring this up in my comedy? Can yes. The way? And, you know, I've, I've found little ways where, I mean, I'm still writing it, but like, even when I, I think about that, I'm like, what if I compared it to like, this is kind of how I write jokes. I'm like, what if I compared it to like redoing a house? Like when people ask me, wait, so are you female? Cause I have fallopian tubes and yeah. and I'm like, it's kind of like I had them redo the front porch, like get rid of the porch. You know? <laughs> and I'm like, but the inside of the house is the same. Like nobody redid the inside of the house. Like mm-hmm. cause people have asked me though, like what reconstructive surgery, like did they redo? I'm like, I've always had a vagina. I've never yeah. not had a vagina. It's always been there. It's like, they just, fix the porch they out yeah. the front porch <laughs> like, see, like, to me that's funny <laughs> I feel like it's funny but yeah it's like to me and this is something I had in, I encouraged you to do like when I you first told me this I was like you you could make like a whole comedy special about it especially right now I feel like the public is like wide open to hear about people's authentic selves Right. And like all of the intersectionalities and, and be proud of it. I wonder how many people would come forward. Like when my reconstructive surgeon told me that one in 20, that's a lot. That's a lot of people. There's a lot of other people that aren't talking about this where they are still, you know, not like, yeah, what is, what are we called? If if we're one in 2,400, like why aren't we called anything? (laughs) Like, not that we need to have a label, but I think that, I think as human beings and speaking to identity, like we have these agreements and part mm-hmm. labeling is part of these agreements, whether it's an agreement in language. And it, I feel like without an agreement around this, it's almost like I've never felt like I've been able to find a way to talk about it. So I, but almost like I, comedy breaks those, you mean like a social agreement type thing? Yeah, like a social agreement. I feel like, com- don't you think comedy, like what makes something funny is breaking that up? Like, and it's very clever. Like your whole analogy about the porch and the house made me laugh. Cause it's like, like you don't put those two things together. And you're also like, how do I talk about this? I'm like, I don't know. You know, like I don't, yeah, cause I'm not like a comedian. <laughs> but when you said that, that actually made sense. And I, cause you have to connect it to people like everyday people. That's another thing too, is like, we have the show, the intersection, it's, you know, uh, it is supposed to be, it is programming like for and by queer people of color and gender non-conforming people. And, and we delve deep into issues that are important to us. Right. Definitely. Uh, but we have to talk about, I mean, we can't talk about it so analytically or something. We have to talk about it in like a common way so that, uh, you know, everyone is included in a way, right? Yeah. Uh, but I, I also oh, feel like what I want to be able to do in this next stage of my like development as a human and writing new content is like that we also are allowed to be confused. Like to your yeah. point, like we discover ourselves, we're evolving in front of the public and this issue around my identity and even my sexuality, like when yes. this discussion of choosing my sexuality and, and I've, uh, this has also had to do with my gender too. Like do I've mm-hmm. had therapists ask me, well, do you think that's why you're a lesbian? Is your sexuality mm-hmm. associated with this abnormality that you were born with? And the answer is honestly, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know categorically if, if it correlates at all or that discussion of does sexual abuse affect your sexuality? I don't know. And I think 
part of this discussion is for us to like take off that stigma of you choose sexuality. It's sure. I have a joke from many years ago where it's like, if you wake up every morning and you choose to be straight, that usually means you're fucking gay. That's what that means. <laughs> you have to choose to be straight. You know what I'm saying? Like when sexuality in general is a yeah. choice, usually the opposite. Yeah. yeah. You know what That's I mean? True. So it, I think just, I want to be able to have that conversation around like, this isn't this like decision where we we participate in society in a polish like here problem solved i understand everything and <laughs> I, I can't come to the stage unless i 100 percent know who i am the whole point is like i'm discovering who i am on yeah. the stage each part is a stage of my development my discovery with my mom and some of that stuff like not all of it i've processed sometimes she says stuff to me that i have like a new aha about that's like a throwback to when i was 12 that all of a sudden like tie something in when I'm 40. And you know, I mean, all of that, like, that's the whole point is that you're not. When I come to the stage with my comedy, I'm not saying like, here's a sculpture, here's my finished product, look at it. It's I'm having you watch me sculpt on stage, mm -hmm. you're seeing me create, you know, and that's what I love about live performance. And that's what's beautiful about getting an immediate response is like, it's also like, you don't know what's going to happen. So that's the audience is always part of it, right? Like when you read the room and you read the presence of the room, you get a sense of like what to do in a way or how to totally. respond. And it's also like a sense of, uh, you know, Manifa Harris, my, my creative club, we have a podcast called Ephemeral, mm -hmm. uh, but we haven't, <laughs> we haven't done it in a really long time, but she had talked about, there's a difference between with performance as, uh, pretending and becoming, and that whenever you perform some role, because she's a professional opera singer, it's not that she's pretending to be that person. She's actually becoming it. And so if you think about, you know, what you do with comedy, bringing all your intersections into play of being Latina, of, you know, being lesbian, of having the sobriety, and then now having this new topic of talking about, you know, um, perhaps talking about your genitalia and then that identity, those identity things that have come up is it's really interesting to think about if we're talking about those topics, we're being that right on stage and we're becoming that in a way that helps create our narrative and our story in a way that makes sense for us and brings that reclaiming back. And then also does that for the people who are witnessing it and who are part of it in the audience. Definitely. One of my favorite um, quotes from the famous acting teacher, Sanford Meisner, is that acting is truthful behavior in imaginary situations. And I've always carried that with me, even creating comedy. Like oftentimes the situation, the scenario is not, is imaginary, but it's the actual real authentic behavior that you would have around whether or not that was really happening. And it's, it's why you can see you know, people get abducted by aliens or these crazy stories where like the alien's not really there, but that you imagine that is truthfully and authentically how you would respond if an alien were taking you from your home, <laughs> you know? And so, and that's what people come on board in that experience. And so that's what I want to be able to bring through my art is that even though that scenario is not truthfully like happening to me in that moment I'm still creating with you like I'm I'm authentically responding that the emotion that's in my body all of that is happening it's evolving there with you yes even even if the story I've told has happened multiple times before it's still new each time in that moment mm -hmm. you know
Yeah. And I mean, to me, that's the beautiful part about performance. And this is something again, that Manifa said, because Manifa was my, my, uh, voice coach when I did an operetta and it was the first time I had actually sung opera. <laughs> I, was doing, I, I was doing it while I was training for this operetta. And she had talked about how whenever you take a breath, you know, to sing, it's not just that you're feeding the voice, but you're resetting. You're kind of like resetting everything. You know, mm-hmm. you're physiologically resetting, you're mentally resetting, you're spiritually resetting. And I think in a way, when we breathe life into our performances, we're doing very much the same thing, right? We're putting ourselves, it's not just the act. It's not just the script. It's we're putting ourselves on the line. We're putting ourselves on stage, you know, for, uh, it's very vulnerable, I think. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I think that's why you can do a Broadway show for three years or do a tour of a comedy album, you know, like this, my, a lot of my content for outside the box is 10 years old. The, the initial, the first time I ever said it, but the more I live life, it's, it sits in me in a different way than it did, even though the messaging is still sort of the same. And so my, my expression of the same words is, is different now than it was when I originally wrote it. And so like, that's why it's kind of magical, which is part of the reason I want to go on tour with my album. Because when you when you listen to my album, which I'm grateful that people do, or you watch the special, you're seeing that moment, that recording, mm-hmm. you know, and that's how I was feeling in that moment when I was in Seattle filming my special. All of that was, I was newly in Seattle, all of that like confidence that was in my body. Like that was the first time I was like paid and put up in a condo to record my <laughs> art. And all of that was in me, right? Mm. Like I could feel that in my being like, whoa, I'm a professional artist. And so that was, that was a part of my beingness when I was bringing that to the stage. And so each time I go to a different city or I'm in a different place, all of that comes with me when I do the same content, you know? It's and so wonderful. It feels good too, to get that prof- professional recognition, to have it all come together in that way. Yeah, it, it helps me. Speaking of the imposter syndrome, it is those few moments where I have to like, recognize the illusion of the imposter syndrome, you know, like I, I've gotten a little bit better at knowing that that's a syndrome, Mm -hmm. right? You're, you're not, it's not, you're not an imposter. Like somebody booked you and put you up in this hotel room and like gave you money to make an album. Like if you just put all of this aside, it's not about ego. Like you didn't just stumble into Seattle and made an album. Like you went <laughs> do all this stuff. You know what I mean? You didn't just like trip into this room and I'm like, oh, screw it. We'll just let her do it. You know what I mean? Like I had to align my- Or they just saw you on the street, like telling a joke and they're like, that one, just that girl. We have to record a special tonight. Let's pick her, you know? Like, so I do have those moments where I'm like, I'm here, I've earned this, you know? Yeah, the idea that it's not, you know, I think this is maybe something, I feel like this, is something that you know that imposter the imposter syndrome connects with people of color and marginalized people specifically in this idea like you were randomly chosen or you know you were the token person or something messed up like that yeah Uh, and to really give yourself the recognition it's like no I'm actually good and I love this and it's who I am and I've earned it and just remind yourself of all those things so I'd really love to hear about how listeners of the intersection can get your album well um it's pretty easy to, to find it if you go to my website renesantos.com it 
comes up as a pop-up, links you right to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, anywhere you can download music, you can get the album. Um, but you can also search outside the box on any of those platforms either, iTunes, Spotify. Um, it's on Pandora, streaming on female comics. I mean, you can find it pretty much anywhere. Um, the special itself was streaming on Amazon Prime. I had a year contract so that, but if people keep downloading the album, we could possibly <laughs> renew the contract. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Um, but it's still streaming. The special itself is still streaming in Roku TV. You can find it on other live platforms. Reverie is streaming it. So um, yeah, if you want to see the visual component, but, um, but yeah, it's a fun thing to run. And your to voice is very expressive too. I wanted to tell you that really quick because oh. there's sometimes when I first started doing video, I forgot that some of it wouldn't be on video. Mm-hmm. And so I would be, you know, nodding to someone as an answer, or I would say, and then this, and you know, some visual, I don't know what was happening. And I could tell that people wouldn't know what I was saying, but your voice is very expressive. So it, it carries across. Sometimes com- comedians do something and they have a facial expression and that's mm-hmm. their expression. And then when you hear it, it doesn't translate. Definitely. So I wanted to tell you that. The editing process too. I appreciate you saying that. Cause I, I noticed that like some of my jokes that were, I have a lot of physical jokes or jokes that uh, have to do with the expression on my face. And those were cut out of the album, but kept in the special. And there were other jokes that have to do with like vocal, like my impressions and my mom and all the stuff that was more vocally um, drawing, you know, alluring stayed on my album. Like I do a Cartman impression, but if you actually yeah. watch my face, <laughs> I look awkward. Like yeah. visually it's not as cool. <laughs> I really like that one. It, it's very funny. Like I feel like yeah. it's funnier when you don't see me say it, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, I've learned, I've learned that a lot that there are it's worth both. I personally think the album is better than the special. <laughs> Part of that's my internal critic, but I actually enjoy mm-hmm. listening to it more than, than watching myself. So guests always leave the show telling the audience and it's just for us too, what your main takeaway was for the show. I think my main takeaway is giving yourself permission to be seen, you know, that to me, vulnerability is really strength. And that's how we bring people together is having this willingness to be seen. Um, And that's always what I've wanted to do with my art is just inspire other people to like shine their light if I can just be transparent about my own. So I love that. It was very healing. This is the first public platform I've really shared this story. So thank you so much for trusting me and, you know, the production and all of that with sharing that story. I think, you know, something that I've learned through your story and just this podcast itself is this idea that we're constantly evolving and that our identity, our sense of being, if we do trust in that process of being vulnerable, like everything you just said, and like trusting in the compassion of others and finding these spaces where we can express ourselves and, and be transparent about who we are, you know, we can continue to feed into more possibilities, right. For queer people and for different marginalized voices rather than, and that can counter the other narratives that exist. So it's really easy for me, like when I get on social media and I get, what do they call it? Do they call it the death scroll where you're just like scrolling and scrolling? Sometimes I do that late at night. I'm like, what am I doing? You know? And I, it's like so much negative stuff. A lot of the stuff needs to be told, whether it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, Asian hate crime stuff or, you know, other things that are happening internationally. But 
it can weigh on you, those narratives. And so having this other space where we're talking about what we're trying to create for ourselves, right. And for each other and for other groups who resonate with what we're saying, I think is really important. And I think your, you know, your voice and your story are really important. So thank you so much. Of course. Thank you for having me. It was an honor. Sure. And so thank you again for your participation and just involving me, you know, in the the evolution of this project and projects to come. Uh, I just wanted to say for the last thing uh, and just remind viewers what the name of the podcast was. So this is episode eight of the intersection diverse folks converse seriously laugh laughing about imposter syndrome and you really did make me laugh probably the most (laughs) a conversation with renee santos about identity comedy and performance thank you so much thank you thanks for having me you've just finished an episode of the intersection diverse folks converse podcast I'm so happy that you decided to join us and you finished the whole podcast to hear all about the stories and lives and the experiences of our guests. I would like to just offer you right now an opportunity to continue to listen to us. You can always find us here at Anchor under the intersection colon diverse folks converse folks F-O-L-X Or you can find us on YouTube under Dr. Shannon Wong Lerner, L-E-R-N-E-R, YouTube channel. We also have a Facebook page also under the intersection, Diverse Folks Converse, that you're welcome to join to find out all about upcoming episodes and guests. Thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next time.